Hi, I'm Sean Perrin, and this is episode 68 of the Clarinet Podcast, the show where I discuss all that's new and neat with clarinet with the neatest people in the industry. In today's episode of the podcast, I'm joined by the wonderful Brad Bain of Bain Mouthpieces. We focus on his epic line of mouthpieces that feature reverse-engineered proprietary rubber, O-ring tenon connections, and are available in tilted ergonomic designs. But we also touch on his barrels, bells, reeds, and some of the really wonderful things that he's planning for the future of his company. His approach is all about getting more from the instrument with less effort from the player, and his artistic wisdom and vision is truly inspiring. Patreon Gold backers will get access to a high-resolution audio, ad-free, extended lightning round version, and early access to today's episode. If these are things that interest you as a fan of the Clarinet Podcast, I encourage you to help support its ongoing production at www.clarinet.com slash Patreon. Thank you so much for listening. Sanding, shaping, balancing. For centuries, mastering your instrument meant mastering these crafts too. But now, D'Addario is refining craftsmanship for the 21st century by refining their reeds and mouthpieces with the world's most innovative techniques, so you can spend less time sanding, shaping, and balancing, and more time perfecting your own craft. To learn more about the new era of craftsmanship from D'Addario Woodwinds, visit daddario.com woodwinds. So I'm here today with Brad Bain from Bain Mouthpieces. Welcome to the show, Brad. Thanks, John. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, that first statement I just made, I'm, I'm feeling that's almost kind of not correct. You have so many different products now. How do you identify your business these days that you make mouthpieces, barrels, reeds, all sorts of other accessories? Yeah, I uh, started out as a mouthpiece refacer and then broadened that into a uh, mouthpiece company. But um, over the recent couple of years, I've augmented my um, lineup to include, uh, like you say, barrels and bells and reeds and accessories. And so we've changed our name to simply Bain, B-E-H-N. And then the the official name is Bain LLC. But um, that allows us more freedom as our um, product line grows. Uh, expanding uh, to uh, so many different areas um, to simply uh, uh, remove the word mouthpieces. It gives us more range. Although I have to say the core of everything I do as a maker and uh, artist is coming from the mouthpiece making point of view. That's where I cut my teeth and it's where I continue to, to put my primary focus. Making a mouthpiece requires a, a great deal more expertise, time and labor of love than uh, any other product, I think. Um, perhaps the clarinet is, is a larger endeavor, but certainly more than uh, barrels or bells or reeds. Um, uh, that said, I have of course, uh, put a lot of time in uh, the other products as well. You know, it's interesting because Apple computers recently did the same thing. A couple years back, they removed the computers part because, you know, they sell iPods and music and all sorts of things now. So if that's any sign of the uh, direction we're heading, I think that's a good, successful uh, (laughs) sort of choice you've made. Yeah. Well, Apple is one of these brands that has such universal identity uh, and it's a simple word. And, um, you know, I look at uh, various products that are successful and their branding efforts and um, 
one of the reasons why. In fact, years when years ago in 1992, when I started out things, it was uh, Bain Mouthpieces International, and mm. uh, I decided that uh, changing to simply Bain Mouthpieces was simpler. And now I've eliminated the word mouthpieces to to a simple Bain. Uh, brand and a simple logo, which is the interlocking BB, Brad Bain. And um, I felt by making things uh, visually simple as well as uh, orally simple, it it hopefully will have a, a better branding uh, effort moving forward. You know, this is so funny because just before we went on air, I was talking about, uh, you know, trying to I was going to try not to go on too many tangents because we've got a lot of products to get through, but I'm already <laughs> on one here. <laughs> I'm into a place I want to know something now. So with the Bain brand, I mean, we know that with Google, for example, their sort of branding is the don't be evil phrase. And and uh, Apple's, you know, summed up in one word was or one sentence was think different. What would Bain Bain's uh, philosophy be summed up in one sentence like that? More sound, less effort. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, that's kind of the crux of everything that I do is to make resonance uh, more available, uh, increasing, and therefore it increases your range of expression, your range of dynamics. Uh, the comfort can help enable uh, more security with response. And of course, that's crucial. Uh, I remember when I was in college and I was executing my phrases just so, boy, it was really different once I got a job in the orchestra and there's a conductor and a whole uh, 60, 70 musicians sitting around me expecting me to be on point with my ability to simply play, say, uh, a staccato A right mm. in time. And if you're not in time, everybody notices it. And it was, it was something that was very revealing to me at that time. And soon thereafter, I decided I better find a more efficient setup. Well, it's interesting because I too was brought up in a very resistant, uh, closed, very closed mouthpiece, very hard read kind of mentality. And as a player, I don't feel that that worked for me. Like looking back through my, even my senior recital, I had different issues with just unpredictable squeaking and that I could not rein in. And it wasn't until several years after graduating when I just threw everything to the wayside and started afresh with something that I, you know, I didn't really listen to anyone's advice. I just found something that worked for me and all that went away. Um, so aside from discarding all your previous gear and, and going against what your teacher says, how can someone <laughs> find their sort of concept of the sound using this philosophy that you just described with uh, more sound, less effort? Well, it's, it's, I think partly a process. Um, I too, you know, I, when I was in college, I was, uh, very confident that I was producing a beautiful sound and I was getting the job done. But then as time and acoustics and, uh, the musical setting evolved, you know, going from a practice room experience at college to a professional experience where I'm having to go on a daily basis to sit in orchestra and, uh, in a larger acoustic space uh, with the different kinds of uh, repertoire uh, unfolding, I felt uh, the natural process unfolded where, you know, eventually I would get an easier playing read with a mouthpiece that enabled uh, more security with response uh, so that I could function with more success. 
Um, and, um, it wasn't that I threw away everything my teacher suggested about the setup. It was just that over the course of time, I evolved into my own personal sweet spot. And mm. I think that that was guided unbeknownst to me at the time, um, through the truth. I call it the truth in the playing experience, the truth in clarinet, you know, what is the, uh, what are the basic parameters that the clarinet is? You know, it's a soprano instrument. It is a reed instrument. It is an instrument that has a volume from nothing. You know, that's the thing we can master. We can play super soft all the way up to um, perhaps that of a trumpet playing mezzo forte. Mm-hmm. You know, so so we have a true range of dynamics that we responsible clarinet citizenry must try to perfect and play beautifully. Um, you know, there are some lovely clarinetists out there who have a, a very small range, that is to say a small range of dynamics. And, I, and I'm always um, uh, inspired by their artistry, but I, I oftentimes wish, man, just imagine how much more interesting it would be if they would simply open the door and let the uh, range increase to what I think of as um, a litmus test, something that is the truth in clarinet. That is from nothing to, say, a mezzo forte trumpet sound. Um, I'm not advocating that we play loud all the time, but I am. Well, yeah, advocating but I, I know what you mean, though. If there's no quiet, there can be no loud. Yeah, that that range of expression is so much more effective when we have a larger range available to us of dynamics. And of course, with with a range, uh, it goes beyond just dynamics, but to the range of articulation, you know, from the smoothest and um, most connected legato to the uh, shorter, shorter uh, staccato to a marcato um, and everything else in between. I mean, you know, some teachers say there are, you know, three kinds of articulations, short, medium and long. And, you know, I think there are infinite kinds of uh, articulations, you know, short and connected and, you know, so forth that I just mentioned. And so to have all all of those uh, types of articulations available to us uh, speaks to range. Um, and of course, range can also deal with uh, flexibility, uh, intonational flexibility, as well as uh, what I call nuanceability. Um, you want to be able to nuance a phrase and perhaps let the phrase unfold in such a natural way that you didn't even know you were, you, you would end up where you did. Um, that comes from a sense of natural fluency and um, efficiency in the playing experience. I want all of these things to be very easy and easy, uh, available to us as, as artists. And that's kind of where I begin as a maker. So regarding the philosophy, just before we move on to the mouthpieces here, um, there must be a point in which it's kind of like the Goldilocks point. Like you say less effort, more sound or was it backwards, more sound, less effort. Um, but there must be a point where there's either just a little too much effort or a little too little effort. And, and how do you know if you're using not enough effort? That's a very good question. Um, I think that, um, you know, it's very common we hear uh, people say, oh, I want a very free blowing mouthpiece. You know, being a mouthpiece maker, I hear that all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think um, there's danger here. Uh, the danger is that I can make a very free blowing mouthpiece, but there's always a cost uh, or, a, or a consequence of, of your actions as you design equipment. So, for example, something that is too free becomes 
um, harder to control and uh, perhaps the response becomes blatty or um, uh, you have less range of articulation styles available to you. Um, the, the niente, I call it zero to 30 miles an hour in the playing experience from, from nothing to mezzo piano. Uh, it becomes more difficult to control when it's too free. Mm-hmm. Whereas if it's too resistant, the top end becomes confined and stifled. That is, you know, from the mezzo forte to the mezzo, uh, to the fortissimo dynamic. Um, it's like you're pushing and pushing, but nothing is going through. You're playing against a, a stopped tube, or for example, a, a, you know, a clarinet. You stuff a, a sock up the bell and and play. I feel like when the reed is too hard, I get that sensation, or if the mouthpiece is too resistant. So um, ideally, efficiency comes not not from freedom, but from the right balance. You need some, uh, what I call working resistance that stabilizes the playing experience. Working resistance can come from two different places. One is the reed or two is the mouthpiece. And I prefer to put it in the mouthpiece. Some people think that my mouthpieces have a little bit more resistance than what they might be used to. Um, Some Van Doren's and Zinner blanks, for example, are quite free by comparison. Um, But uh, I do it on purpose because I feel like it's a lot better to put um, uh, to play a free read because um, I I look at the, the world of clarinet players and oftentimes I hear the sound of effort, which I find displeasing. And that come is coming from playing on harder reads. You know, a lot of folks play on four or four and a half, even five strength reads. And I feel like, um, that doesn't do the body good. It's become, you know, we could become tense and, um, it also can create a fuzzy, fluffy kind of a a sound that's, uh, has, well, I use the word, um, there's too much crap in the sound and I, (laughs) and I, (laughs) I joke about it, but you know what I mean? What I mean, you know, you can hear some or kind of airy quality. And if I hear air just passing through the, the, into the sound propagation, that means that there is air that's going from my body through, uh, passing by the reed that's not being converted into sound. And it's just going through the mouthpiece and, and it's complete wasted energy. So what I want is a hundred percent of the air that comes from my body to be converted into reed vibration. And that reed vibration of course is, turns into sound that's that's 100 efficiency it's not it's not an easy thing to achieve all the time but it's a good thing to strive for so um yeah there's there are lots of ways to find the right balance but a good read that is free and vibrant but still stable it plays the altissimo register in pitch when you're playing with a good strong dynamic yet i can play really soft in the shalumo with clarity and resonance and projection one of the things that's very important for me as a orchestral clarinetist is to be able to play pianissimo in the low register and feel like I've got core. And I sit right next to the principal bassoon because I play principal clarinet in the Oklahoma City Philharmonic. And I always find um, that that's a wonderful template, a wonderful thing to try to strive for. Can I match his resonance? He's playing soft and in his formant range, can I play soft in that same register, you know, down, down in the low register on the clarinet and have equal backbone to the body of sound that he's producing in the, in the orchestral context. And that's something that's really 
um, a wonderful feeling to achieve and very few clarinetists are able to do it. I'm not able to do it all the time. It's a good thing to strive for though. Why is it hard to do? Because he's in his formant register and I'm in the Shalumo register. Uh, you know, the formant register on the bassoon is one that's going to project. The formant register on the clarinet is the one that's going to project. But for me, it would be an upper, upper range. So if I'm going down in the lower range um, on the clarinet and get it to project in a, in a resonant, clean way, uh, it's, it's a joy. That's also interesting. And that kind of, you know, parallels to my experience that I had with your products. And uh, I first found out about the products that you were making at Clarinet Fest 2015, I believe, in Lawrence, Kansas. And uh, I was quite intrigued at the time. And I have to say that this year, things really seem to have, I don't know if it was just the location or what, but there seemed to be an incredible interest in in your products. Um, how was your experience at Clarinet Fest? You know, we've always done very well at, at the conferences. I, I'm proud to say that, um, you know, we've we've always come out ahead and uh, we've had some very good conferences but this one was more than twice as good as our very best and yeah we did have a very good location but I think there was buzz there was something going on on the floor because we had you know I had we had four people working the table two tables and there were frequently two or three people deep uh, eight across I mean it was crazy and I'm thrilled by the response Um, everything was kept no returns. It was just marvelous. Wow. Uh, I've had a lot of emails from from people saying how uh, it's opened them up, freed them. You know, their new mouthpiece or barrel or whatever has has opened them up, freed them. They're creating more resonance, yet better concentration and um, warmth all together in one package. And that's kind of with a with a fuel that keeps me going when I hear those kinds of responses. So this is, of course, where I first tried your products for the first time was Clarinet Fest last year. And then this year I did get the chance to sit down. But like you were saying, it was just so crazy busy. So you you generously lent me a couple of your gorgeous mouthpieces here, the Epic series and also the barrels. And so I, I brought them home. I was experimenting with them a bit. And I'll be honest, at first it was a little bit odd for me because I am used to using so much air and pressure and effort. And I even though I've kind of changed, I'm still on the tail end of that philosophy Um you know, mentally, right? So to use your mouthpieces was kind of an interesting experience because at first I got a little frustrated. I was like, why is this? I'm putting a lot into this and it's, it's, it's kind of, uh, it, it wasn't really giving me back to what I wanted. And so I, I, I watched your interview with, with Ed Jaffe, which everyone should check out. I've said that already in the intro to this, uh, interview and also another interview you did with, um, uh, Kristen Denny Chambers, I believe. Yes. Well, yeah. So anyway, so I was there, uh, watching these videos and I just, thought to myself, I had the mouthpiece on my desk and I'm watching these, these interesting conversations. And, and I thought that I'm, I needed to go kind of, uh, completely into this philosophy you were talking about with, with lower effort and just let the mouthpiece do what it does. And, and once I matched the correct read to the mouthpiece, I, I was not really prepared actually for what happened. It was an unbelievable sort of response and, and tone and the resonance that, which you talk about so much, um, it was, it was remarkable. I mean, I, I had a guitar on my wall about six feet away from me. And it, it, when I stopped playing the clarinet, I was, I was also you know, so in tune, but the, the, the guitar was vibrating sympathetically back at me as if I'd walked over and played it. And mm-hmm. I'd never heard anything like that before. And as I let myself kind of get into this mouthpiece, I kind of like, you know, discover it. And, and <laughs> in that way, I'm not sure if that makes complete sense, but, but, uh, it was amazing. So have other people had this experience and do they have to kind of adapt to this philosophy to make it work and be most happy with it? Or, or what have other people's experiences been like? Uh, it's great that you mentioned all of this because first of all, 
Yeah. I mean, I make mouthpieces different than anything else on the market. And I mean, it could be a lot easier for me. I mean, I've been doing this since 1992. I've had mouthpieces on the market uh, on my own design for my own proprietary rod rubber um, since 2005. And, and during that time, I mean, it's been a long process. It could have been a lot easier for me to just simply make something like uh, everybody else is doing that that the mainstream can simply slap their read on, blow into it and get immediate results. But I didn't want to do that. I wanted to make something better and I wanted to make the very best thing I could possibly make. I mean, it, it's a, it comes from within this, you know, I'm basically the reason why I do this is because I wanted to make a better mouthpiece for myself to play an orchestra on. And I'm still thrilled on a daily basis going to orchestra and reaching into my case and saying, Ooh, this is my new creation. Let me try it. See how it works. <laughs> And we just played Brahms Second Symphony Orchestra last night, and um, I had a case with four mouthpieces sitting on the floor, and I'm like, well, which one am I going to play as I'm warming up on stage with the audience filtering in? And I think I ended up selecting, well, it was my uh, my new um, uh, mouthpiece design that has yet to come out. It's uh, uh, it will I'll tease the audience here a little bit. Um, it's called the Evoke, and it is surrounded by my patented uh, geometric uh, changes in the angle and the posture uh, that the way we approach the instrument. We can talk more about that uh, later on. But um, to answer your question. Um, all of these things, the sum of all of these parts, the, you know, me being so much involved in it, um, the reed being, uh, uh, re, you know, benefiting if it's a lighter reed than what we're used to playing on our on our mainstream equipment. My concept of resonance response balanced by the combination of working resistance with freedom, the freedom that comes from the vibration of the reed uh, and so on and so forth. It's a learning curve. I, I tell my, my clients it takes two years. It took me two years to learn how to play my mouthpieces. By that, I mean, it was two years where on a daily basis, I was discovering something new, joyous, invig invigorating, um, inspirational. And I think that speaks to the richness of my product, but it also speaks to how far away I am from the mainstream concept in terms of just being able to put a read on it, blow and get immediate go. Uh, it, there's a process. And so one of the reasons why I've been reluctant to go into, um, you know, distribution and have my, my, flagship lines of mouthpieces available at music stores is because I don't think music stores are necessarily equipped with the personnel and the understanding and, and in to be able to have somebody on the showroom floor and simply be able to speak the, um, the language of what needs to happen to help the process unfold most beneficially. I mean, you and I had a conversation at the clarinet conference back in the end of July, and I encourage you try, you know, the lighter reads and then, but you still had to go and seek out what, two and a half hours worth of interviews. And you had to really have an <laughs> open, open mind. And, and I consider myself pretty open-minded. It's, fun, it's funny you yeah. mentioned that you remember that because I, I do remember I came to your booth and, and you gave me a read to try with mouthpiece and I was, Oh no, this one's too, too soft, too softer. And, uh, I insisted, I think I took like a four and a five read home with me because <laughs> mm -hmm. I found your reads were playing a bit soft for me. But then once I went home and, and found out what worked best, I was like, okay, he was right. The three and a half is the best. <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, I could tell like right away you could hear the so-called crap in the sound. 
and and identify which reed was not the best for that mouthpiece you know instantly so you're right it's it's difficult to find someone in the average music store who will be able to provide that type of feedback um from a clarinetist perspective and you know you're the manufacturer of the product right you know what it is you want it to sound like and and which direction it should be going so right yeah i often get comments oh i love the sound but there's something in the feel and and then we have a conversation whether it be on the phone or through email or ideally face to face but um uh, typically people come at my mouthpieces with too hard of a read and too strong uh, pressure with the mouth. And um, ultimately, we have to allow ourselves to release ourselves from the burden of the playing experience and start afresh with um, a read that blows through with freedom and security, and then find the embouchure pressures that enable that read to sound. In other words, come away from the read rather than grip it in place. We don't need to grip it. We don't need to bite the focus in. Typically on, you know, mouthpieces of other manufacturers, I find that we have to bite the focus in a little bit by Mm. comparison as compared to mine. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, my, my, my gear, everything, uh, the other crux of what I do, you know, um, more sound, less effort is autofocus. The focus is extremely important to me. And um, whether it be when I select a read or when I'm making a mouthpiece, that's the most important, you know, seed that's, that starts the process. I've got to have the focus self-evident. It's got to be there automatically. And so I call it autofocus. If the barrel, when I put the barrel on it, focuses the sound so I can release the embouchure a little bit, that's a good thing because now I have more resources available to art, to making music, to turning a phrase rather than gripping in the sound all the time. See, I think Um, it's so interesting to, to get into this now. I think we're into something really Really interesting here because I, I did experience this too. Sometimes I would do something to this mouthpiece and expect one thing and I would find that the opposite would actually achieve that result. So for example, mm-hmm. what you're talking about with getting gaining focus uh, in the upper register or even just in the core of the sound, if you apply the pressure, I find it kind of does the opposite. Whereas if you release some pressure, it, it does that. Has that been a common experience too? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, basically, if you if it's working right, you can relax more and get a better sound with more more concentration and warmth. And and that's what I, when you get that the focus and the warmth, you get sweetness. And I think we're all looking for sweetness. A lot of times, people also talk about a dark sound. I don't really think it's so much that they're looking for a dark sound. They just they want a, a more beautifully integrated sound where the high overtones are blended with the with the low overtones in a very sort of lovely way where there's nothing that's spiking out or, or sounding out of place. It's all blended. Um, you know, back on the reads really quickly, I'm, I'm a pretty light read player. I, you know, most people play other people's setups. I play a lot of people's setups all the time. And I often, you know, 99% of the time, I feel like I, pl- I, I favor something a little bit easier, a little bit freer, a little bit lighter read. Mm-hmm. Um, Bill Hutchins, I don't, I, I didn't want to um, spend time dropping names and everything, but I, I think it's, it's important to know. Bill Hudgens, the principal clarinetist of the Boston Symphony, and he's embraced my equipment, and he's playing on my um, epic mouthpiece and on my aria reeds. And um, every time I've worked with him and I play his setup, I always feel like, oh, this is easier than mine. He's playing on a lighter <laughs> read. But then I hear it 
when he plays and I hear it in the symphony hall and then I hear it in the green room and we work together and, and, and I play his exact setup that I heard in, you know, when I was in the audience in the hall and now I'm downstairs in the green room, I experience, um, it's when he plays it, it's so rich and so meaty and so, uh, so much vitality and effervescence and all of these, these great things that get me excited about sound. I think he's got a marvelous quality. You can hear it at the very end of the Ed Joffe interview with Bill. Um, and that is, I think a great public example of what I consider the ideal. He's achieving more sound with less effort and it's so beautiful. So let's get into these products a little bit more because we've talked a lot about them, but not a lot of the details. And for those who haven't actually experienced themselves, in a way, they're just, they look like a normal mouthpiece from a distance. But once you get up close, there's some very different things about them. You're actually, for the Epic line, you're making your own rubber completely from scratch. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. So walk me through that. I mean, I, are you the only person doing this? Well, to the extent that I'm uh, making the rubber, yes. And and I'll be a little bit uh, detailed about that for you, um, if you can indulge me. So uh, the, there are various manufacturing processes for um, rubber. Um, the authentic way uh, from the pre-war era uh, was to um, take the uh, rubber and sulfur mixture, the compound, and mix it up. And then it was flattened out like um, pastry dough and then by hand rolled into a rod form. And then from there, you would place it in a clamshell mold and cook it for a long time at um, not extremely hot temperature. And this creates this wonderful sounding rubber. Um, it's It's a combination of the chemical formulation, uh, the, the ratios and the cure, the cooking process. Mm -hmm. So for example, say you have this great chocolate chip cookie recipe, um, but you don't, uh, really know how to cook it. I mean, is it going to be good if you cook it at 2000 degrees for 30 <laughs> seconds or at 200 degrees for 30 minutes? Probably neither. You sort of have to find out the sweet spot to get, the beautiful, delicious, scrumptious cookie. And uh, the same thing with with uh, the hard rubber. Not only, you know, now that we figured out our, our formulation for the rubber by, by reverse engineering an old Henri Shedville mouthpiece that I got from Ron Rubin, um, we had to determine the cure process. And that came from a great deal of research, looking at old periodical journals and uh, from the from the sweet time of the rubber science was back in the turn of the century from the 1800s to the 1900s and into the early 1900s. There was a great deal of science invested to this modern miracle plastic called hard rubber. And um, uh, we searched out a lot of that um, information to find out the optimum cure process. And it's a labor intensive um, process and no one's doing it like that. There's another manufacturing process where other men, where it's more common today and that's called extruding the rubber into the, um, uh, it's compounded and mixed and then it's extruded through a nozzle into uh, the rod form. And the problem with extrusion is that it's heated and you have to um, uh, put some um, stabilizers into the formula to prevent charring during the extrusion process. And those stabilizers will affect the acoustic 
sound propagation. So as far as this goes, I mean, with the vibrations and the, the better sound and all that, is that something that's subjective or is there some way that this rubber literally is scientifically uh, more resonant and better? And, and how would that be determined? Is, is that a... Does that question yeah. make sense? <laughs> sure. So it's for the consumer, it's largely subjective because they don't have the, the the expensive apparatus to be able to empirically evaluate. What what I did was um, the, the lab. Well, for two it was two points. One, we took the Henri Chedville mouthpiece and we had to consume about eighteen grams of its material to uh, you know set it aflame for spectrographic analysis, and we did all sorts of other testing, but. Uh, 18 grams of it were actually destroyed. We still have some material left um, from which we put it through a DMA, dynamic mechanical analysis, acoustic frequency uh, uh, sweep, where we set it to sound vibrations and and evaluated how it started to resonate and how this material started to to sympathetically react, and uh, then used that as the control that that Henri Chedville rubber was the ideal and then with the we had a, a, a compound development program which lasted a, a few years um, where we would uh, the easy part was actually reverse engineering the material formulation of this rubber but then we had to determine the exact cure process to enable the acoustics to match the Henri Shedville. And so we had A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, 10 different um, cooking processes until we hit it. Um, and each one of those uh, cure processes uh, was set to the DMA machine and evaluated during the frequency sweep to see if it would resonate, uh, store and release um, vibrations and resonance uh, in the same way that the Henri Shedville did. And we hit it with the number 10 J uh, cure. Um, you know, property science is, is very complicated. You can do hardness tests, um, you know, where you, you press into the, uh, to the material and, you know, the little needle goes in and, but then how does it rebound? How long does it take to go? How far? Um, you know, that, that sort of speaks to its viscoelastics, uh, you know, characteristics of the material. Um, how much does it store and release energy and under what circumstances does it um, want to release and under what circumstances does it store at what temperature does it seem to react most favorably, you know, at 72 degrees or at 14 degrees, uh, sorry, Fahrenheit, not Celsius, <laughs> uh, um, you know, and so forth. So, uh, you know, we had to hit, um, a, you know, find a needle in a haystack really. And it was extremely, um, exciting and arduous, and I couldn't have done it without wonderful people, scientists who embraced my project. Um, you know, the 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 person who was involved uh, spearheading this project um, in the lab with me was um, an amateur violinist, and uh, he was a, an older gentleman who. Um, was nearing the end of his career uh, as a you know laboratory scientist, and he just embraced me. Um, it was it's very touching. I mean, I I spent a lot of money doing this, but I mean, if if he didn't embrace me and the project, it could have been you know like 
impossibly expensive this project to do wow. because um you know the amount of hours and resources and time that was involved uh, i was very fortunate you know people um are so important in the process of making uh, great things great things generally don't happen on their own it, and uh, you know getting people to to work with you um uh, was something that i was very fortunate to experience well, and you know, I, I personally had no idea about the level of scientific uh, involvement here. And and I imagine that, you know, the level of complexity is actually much more difficult than even I am currently understanding. Because to say that you reverse engineer something, um, you know, it depends on the thing. If it's a if it's a cheeseburger you just picked up at McDonald's, I mean, I can look at it and say, OK, there's a bun, there's some lettuce, there's some meat. All right, I can do that at home, you know, but if, if I get a 200 year old you know bottle of some sort of alcohol and have to determine you know, what region it was sourced from and how the grapes were stepped on or whatever. I mean, that's a, that's a totally different thing. And this sounds more like the latter than the former. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, some, <laughs> I remember when I was getting started, they said, well, do you want the comprehensive um, reverse engineering or do you want the, uh, the short version? And I said, well, uh, you know, what's the difference in cost? Da, 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 da. And I, I determined that, you know, if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to spend my retirement, I'm going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> right. And yeah. so um, we went for the comprehensive. And so we, you know, we were able to evaluate all the, the chemicals, all the materials and the ratios um, with precision in the hard rubber. And uh, like I said, that was just the beginning because then we had to figure out what the what the cure was to um, fully enhance, enhance and take advantage of the acoustics that were um, available to us. But, um, you know, it requires scientists, it requires people who are, you know, dedicated towards the, the science of rubber. This is not something that I could do myself. I mean, I, I certainly wasn't arrogant enough to assume that I could just go and make this material on my own. I'm not a, a rubber scientist. I'm a clarinet player. And um, I was very fortunate to um work hard in the early stages of, you know, and, and I had a lot of zeal. I was very, very determined to make my own mouthpiece and to make it as good as I possibly could. So I researched and worked really hard, to, but eventually, you know, I remember I was talking uh, on the phone when I was just getting started. I would, you know, I looked in the back in, back then you'd look in the, in the phone book, the, the white pages or, or, you know, early internet searches to try and find, you know, rubber manufacturers. Hey, you know, I want to make this old rubber from an old mouthpiece. Can you do this? And, you know, I called hundreds of people and I kept on getting the same, the same sort of thing, uh, answer, which was essentially no. And then finally I, you know, I spoke with somebody and he was like, you know, this is interesting, but it's not for me, but you ought to contact this person. And so I contacted uh, this person and this person ended up being, you know, a godsend. He was the person who, uh, was that, um, person I mentioned before who, took me under his wing and with the resources of a full laboratory specializing in rubber science, um, I feel very confident that uh, through the, the passion and through the people and through the uh, knowledge that they had, that we got something very special. Well, you know, this merger between science and music and the arts, I mean, 
I think it's actually very interesting. And it's very interesting to me, too, that sometimes the person who can take something like a clarinet to the next level is not a musician. They're, they're an engineer or a scientist or something like that. And it's interesting to see how science and art are sort of intermingling in this way. And it's a, a, it'd be interesting to see what happens in the future, even with these kind of, kind of um, products. I think it's fantastic that we have such, you know, modern science available at, uh, to all of us now. I mean, the fact that you and I are speaking, um, in intimate setting from thousands of miles apart. Um, and then it will be listened to all over the world. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty neat. Um, it's a wonderful, wonderful era for, uh, for exploration. Um, uh, but you know, the objective subjective thing. So, you know, obviously it was objective in the, in the lab, but to answer your question earlier on, um, of course, the the consumer, the the the, the mouthpiece client, uh, or the barrel client, and so forth, th- they don't have the resources of a lab necessarily to make those um, empirical observations. They're just doing it on their own. They're they're e- using their ears and their artistic sensibility to evaluate, and I think that's great too. Uh, you know, it's got to touch. It's got to touch your heart. Yeah, I see the point. I mean, sub- subjectivity is important. I mean, it comes down to do you like the sound of something versus some other thing. But in a way, yeah. I-, I fear that sometimes our subjectivity as musicians is clouded by a sense of mythology or, or something mm-hmm. not so valuable, you know, oh, well, my teacher did this or, or so-and-so plays this, so I should too, or, you know. Yeah. And, that's uh, actually, that's actually very true. You know, as we, as we leave the academic setting and then we learn how to be our own person, you know, my, you know, I, I think of when I was in my uh, teens, I was learning how to play the clarinet. And then when I was in my 20s, I was learning how to apply what I learned in school. And then when I was in my 30s, I was learning how to be my own man. Mm-hmm. And now I just turned 50 a couple of days ago. It's a whole new world of exploration. I'm free. You know, I'm, I, I feel very confident in my ways, but very um, liberated by um, having, uh, you know, since my thirties now I've had 20 more years to, um, sort of tie up loose ends and develop a real strong sense of what works and what doesn't work for me. I've been able to step outside of, uh, the confinements of, you know, various expectations and, and demands that other people put upon me. And now I'm just able to, to explore things on my own. And, and I think that that, that process is kind of, true for many it's you know you can put it put it your under on your own terms but as we grow in adulthood and to uh, allow you know those learning years to uh, to unfold um sure enough we'll find things that maybe somebody told us along the way that we don't necessarily agree with or we think my gosh why didn't teacher tell me that you know or it didn't seem to make sense uh, when they told me, but wow, now it makes sense. 20 years later, I I was joking with, um, some, uh, some old, um, clients and friends. I consider all my clients friends, but these ones are very special from, they go back many years. And we were at the table at the very end of the third day of the clarinet conference. And we were joking there, hey, Stanley Hasty students, and I'm a Marcellus, a Robert Marcellus student. And we were joking about the things that, why didn't they tell me that? Why didn't they? We should, and I said, we should do a podcast on what Stanley Hasty and Robert Marcellus didn't tell us. <laughs> you know, we should. Yeah. Are you, are you talking about <laughs> us? Like, yeah, like, yeah, having, like, 
I was talking about it with with those with guys, you know, like an interview. And of course, you know, you're the guy that should do it because you're you're so uh, well known in the podcast music. Well, scene. hey, that would be that would be a hilarious <laughs> series. I mean, that would be that'd be awesome. <laughs> so if they want to do that. It's a it's a wonderful upside down way to look at the pedagogy of these great master teachers of the last generation, but the, which would I think very interestingly allow their pedagogy to unfold, but also the this the the spirit of the person you're interviewing to to uh, speak of it and to explore their own pedagogy and how it's how it's um, affected their um, real world demands and needs as a clarinet player. Well, absolutely. And, you know, I don't want to, um, you know, disparage the advice of teachers, but um, it is true, though, you do have to find your own your own your own sound and stuff. Um, but someone recently commented on the website, for example, something uh, I can't remember it was one of the products I'd reviewed. I think it was the Bakun clarinets and and they were really interested in purchasing one. But their big concern was, oh, well, I don't know any big artists that play on that. And and I sort of commented like, well, OK, I mean, first of all, here are some that do. But but does that really affect your decision? Like if you really feel it's a comfortable choice for you, I mean, why are you shying away from it? You know, but uh, I, I've been in that same boat. I mean, why do I own one of the guitars I own is called a it's a limited edition. Um, it's one of only a thousand or something like that, but it's a laminated bamboo top. And honestly, the only reason I own it is because I'm a clarinet player. And w- what would be a cooler guitar for a clarinet mm. player to own than that, you know? So <laughs> yeah. I'm kind yeah. of in the the same thing. Like, oh, all, all the big rock stars play that guitar and, and man, it looks so cool. I mean, so I own it. <laughs> but um, yeah. so it's tough to get out of that sort of mindset and really explore artistically. But uh, and uh, the guidance of your teacher is important, but it's also important to, like you said, find your own sort of direction through through all these things. I think that when we when we're at a point in our careers where we can really explore ourselves it's just so exciting musically. I mean, the little old lady in the audience that's hearing your clarinet playing doesn't really care that you studied with Robert Marcellus or Stanley Hasty or anyone else. What what ex- keeps her from falling asleep is when you turn a beautiful phrase. And frankly, it's not necessarily if you have a beautiful sound, although that, you know we clarinetists are very, very interested in beauty of sound. But what she's looking for is a good phrase. And I think that um, uh, it's important that we remember that music. And if your setup is hindering your ability to make beautiful music, then it's time to explore things regardless of what (laughs) your guidance in the past by your teachers has been. I often get um, uh, younger players, uh, you know, college age players and things. I, you know, I'm looking for a dark tone. I'm looking for a free blowing mouthpiece. And uh, my, my immediate reaction, which I rarely say directly is, well, um, why would you want a dark tone? Mm-hmm. And why do you, you know, why, and what's, you know, what's the deal with, with free blowing? I mean, that's easy, right? Just, you know, find a read that's a little bit easier playing, but no, what they want is, um, a dark tone with the same hard read that they're using. You know, it's, a, I find most, for most clarinetists, it's a lot easier to change mouthpieces than it is to change read strength. And I find that the strangest thing in the world, but it's so, so common. You know, they're stuck on their hard read formula that, you know, oh, I can't change that. You know, it would, it would make my world upset. Um, as far as the dark thing, I have vision accessible to me, and I feel very fortunate to have my senses, sound, taste, vision, so on. So 
why would I want to go in the room on a, you know, and turn the lights off mm-hmm. so I can no longer see? That's eliminating one of my senses, primary senses now that I have fortunately available to me. And I think the same thing with tone and the word dark. So why would I want to take stuff out of my sound? Yeah, yeah. You know, sound should be a com- combination of, of all the overtones, the lowest overtones, the middle overtones, and the highest overtones. I welcome them all, bring them all to the plate. So now I have a, a painter's palette with all the colors available to me, and then I construct it and voice it in a way that serves the music available to me. Sure, I played Brahms last night, and so I voiced it more Brahmsian. And when we're doing... Berlioz, I'll voice it a little bit more Berliozian, whatever that <laughs> means to me. But, um, you know, to darken something just to make it dark eliminates a great world of choice mm-hmm. that I think is, is service, serving the art. I want all the colors available to me as a clarinetist. And I find it sad that this word dark has become such a positive I think bright. Here's another interesting thing. Um, when I was when I was teaching a young student, she was very young. She was actually almost too small to hold the instrument and have her fingers cover the tone holes and such. And, she, and I invited her to the orchestra concert. And um, uh, she she I asked her, did you like the Mozart or um, uh, the other piece? It was a contemporary piece of music um, by Donald Grantham. And I said, which one did you like better? And she goes, oh, I liked the Grantham piece better. And I said, why? Because it was bright. And I said, that's interesting. So you like, you like it because it was bright. What an interesting choice of words. So then the next week in, in lesson, I brought two different reads. And I said, which sound do you like better? I played read one, which was the dark read, and read two, which was the, was the bright read. And this girl, she was so young and um, new to music. She didn't know anything about music. She was just coming from her own innocent, pure point of view. And, and she said, oh, I like that read better. And I said, why? Because it's bright. Mm. And, you know, I should say both of these reads were good representatives of dark and good representatives of bright. I wasn't like, you know, when we think of the word bright, we typically think of it as a negatively associated word. I'm taking I'm trying to remove the negative and just bright good versus dark good. But nonetheless, I think somebody in a very basic, innocent, um, unbiased setting might surprise us for what is, what is, uh, better. And I think that she was responding to the, to the life in the sound that the slightly brighter read produced when, when it's a darker sound we're we typically are voicing it so that the lower overtones are more, um, apparent and the upper ones less so, and it becomes a little thicker and a little bit um, I'm using bias words now, duller <laughs> and uh, <laughs> less interesting. And um, whereas the, the the sound with all the overtones available to it, uh, I think has um, a little bit more sparkle. And I find that quite appealing. So bright good wins the day uh, as far as I'm concerned. And I think that was what maybe, Sean, you were experiencing when you started to get used to 
my mouthpiece. It, uh, when you've got the reed set a little bit easier blowing and your and your embouchure maybe sort of migrated into a, in a into a, uh, a a way that enabled a lighter reed to vibrate um, warmly and with ring and resonance, which. I think in, it was really that story where you said the the, the 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 guitar started to to resonate sympathetically. That that speaks uh, to me. With the vibrations and the resonance you're trying to achieve, um, which ligature is best matched with these mouthpieces? Because the ligature is something that, of course, has a huge effect on the response and uh, yeah. resonance yeah. of the clarinet. Well, you know, there's there are generally two camps of ligatures, the cloth style ligature and the metal style ligature. I've always liked metal ligatures. My teacher, Marcellus, got me on a Bonaud a ligature with a center cutout uh, and, you know, it's a two screw ligature. And so I've always sort of had that in, in my system. But then over the course of time, I've explored and tried many different things. I found that cloth ligatures can sometimes have a little bit more free, flexible characteristics and maybe a little bit more um, uh, cover to the sound. Um, so I, I think, you know, a ligature is a personal choice. Uh, I don't necessarily think that you have to play X ligature on Y mouthpiece. Um, but I think it's worth everyone taking time to explore, to find the formula that works to, for them. That said, my formula has been and continues to be metal, two screw, instead of one and um, inverted. And there are a variety of things in addition to that that are important to me. One uh, of primary importance is it's got to stay on. Mm. It's amazing how few ligatures stay on when I switch from B flat to A clarinet. In Mahler's fourth symphony, you're going back and forth so fast that if anything goes wrong, it's a bad, it's a bad thing. And so I got to be able to tighten that ligature with both screws and have, uh, the, the ligature feel comfortable in my hand. This is the second thing. When I grab it to go from B flat to a, I don't want to, um, hurt my hand. You know, some ligatures have a big screw with sharp edges, um, that when I grab with the palm of my hand, it hurts. So number one, it's got to stay on two. It's got to not hurt three. It's got to be metal Four, It's got to have two screws and, uh, the metal has to be thick enough so I feel like it's really makes a solid sound. I don't want to play the clarinet where the reed feels like it's slipping out from under me. You know, it, uh, the equivalent of the rug being pulled out from under my my toes. Mm -hmm. um, a good, firm, tightly gripped ligature. Uh, feel I feel like the reed is clamped on in such a way that the, the reed is giving me full, uh, crisp, uh, response. If the, if the, if I just, uh, lightly tighten it with a cloth ligature, sometimes I feel like the sound can go to spread more easily. Um, and, um, it might not respond with as much precision. Sometimes people, when they crank the ligature down, they feel like it tightens up, it stymies the vibration. And I think that there is that risk. So you want to have a metal ligature, which when you crank it tight, it still allows the reed to vibrate well. And, or you got to be willing to use, to select your reed properly for a well-tightened ligature. Um, again, you know, going to a, 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 the right reed for the right setup. Well, it's interesting uh, because I've been trying this mouthpiece with several different ligatures. Um, and uh, it, I like your sort of list of practical reasons to choose one ligature over another, too, because I, I kind of feel that way as well. The one I find actually works most interestingly with it 
um, and sort of the tonal philosophy and the response and everything actually is a Florian Popa wooden band ligature. Um, interesting. I found it is very interesting, but the, the problem that I'm having with that ligature though, and hope, I hope to talk to uh, Florian about that soon on the podcast here. We've been trying to connect for some time. Um, but, uh, it is rather difficult to switch between the instruments because it's not, it's the kind of thing where it's removed by twisting, you know? So uh-huh. when you want to grab the mouthpiece and put it on your other clarinet, it is difficult to move it. And, and, you know, of course his ligatures are quite popular with sax players where that's not an issue, but, mm. uh, but yeah, I'd be interested to find out how that could be improved with that product. But there are other ligatures too, which are great. They sound wonderful, but they are just hard to move around. So it's a practical consideration. Yeah, I think the practical consideration from my point of view as an orchestral clarinetist, where I have to go from B flat to A um, all the time, uh, is it's a large enough issue that we should all take note. But for some of us, it simply doesn't matter because we're not going back and forth from B flat to A. And in that case, it opens up the choice greatly. Um, uh, my colleague uses a, a string type of a ligature. And so in the orchestra, and so she actually grabs onto the mouthpiece from the sides uh, of the, of the mouthpiece in on the beak. And I think that pinching and, and grabbing where is it's for me, I it wouldn't, I wouldn't want to do it because I think that I'd be too, too concerned that I might just um, move the reed a little bit. Yeah. And, and change how the reed feels. I'm very, very finicky about, you know, whenever I play the instrument, I want to have it feel the same as the last time. So if I have a few measures rest, I typically put the mouthpiece cap right back on top over the setup to keep the reed in a humidity controlled atmosphere. I want the, like I say, obviously the ligature has got to hold the reed properly and securely because it's got to, it's got to be a reliable playing concern. I mean, you know, can you imagine having to play something touchy in orchestra and you start playing and the reed head moved and all of a sudden you don't know what's going to happen. So it's, it's, it's very important to me. I, I personally um, endorse uh, Charles Bay ligatures and um, Ishimori ligatures. I think those are uh, those, those two fit all the uh, criterion of just practicality. And I also like the way they sound. That said, I've not tried the Popa ligature. It sounds like it wouldn't pass my um, uh, criterion on just, you know, being able to stay on, but um, there are many ligatures out there and it's fun to try them. I haven't tried them all. I've hard to try them this. all. There's so many. <laughs> yeah. I've been playing a, a, a Ishimori a solid silver with a, uh, pink gold plating on it uh, lately, which I've been enjoying a lot. So your products, one of the things I find interesting is that you have the uh, the Epic line, which is, a, you know, comparatively expensive mouthpiece um, contrasted with a lot of these sort of uh, uh, mass produced ones that exist, um, approaching $800 on that end of the spectrum. And you're, you're on your website, too, you even suggest that people, as they come to try these mouthpieces, there's there's various hotels listed to to stay at while they while they do this. So they really are kind of selecting a career mouthpiece. Um, mm-hmm. And then all the way to the other end of the, the spectrum there, you've got some beginner student models that are under $40. So how do you achieve such a spread like this? And, and how does someone identify where they fit in on your product line? Oh, great questions. Well, um, you know, basically I've tried to make it as easy as possible by on the, um, the mouthpiece, 
uh, page on my website, basically helping you determine what level you are, level one, two, or three. And basically I define it uh, as student or, um, uh, you know, like beginning student, uh, which could be um, uh, not only a beginning student, but if you need a a spare mouthpiece for the marching band or something and you're in high school or even in college, that would be my overture uh, $35 mouthpiece. Um, and then level two, you know, that would be, um, if you're a, an amateur, um, a professional who doesn't really have great interest in mouthpieces or, uh, you know, a college age student, um, yeah, that mouthpiece is a professional level mouthpiece. It's competitive with any professional product on the market. Um, it's just my lower priced, um, option. And that would be, um, I, I have some mouthpieces made from Zinnerblank or my uh, Sono line, which is made from uh, a less expensive rod rubber with my manufacturing process. And then my most expensive line, level three, is uh, my Epic line, which is made from our proprietary rod rubber, which is that expensive process I mentioned earlier of, of making the rubber that with all the science involved, as well as, um, you know, I have very unique um uh, options in design and uh, facings. Um, I can customize anything you want. I can basically sit down and work one-on-one or through the email. Uh, we can communicate uh, to make an artistic product for a um, an elite clientele of connoisseurs uh, and professionals, uh, and that would be the Epic. You also design a mouthpiece that has sort of a tilt to it. Would you tell me about that for a minute? Yeah, sure. So the the tilted mouthpiece, some people call it the bent mouthpiece um, or the one with a funny angle. It kind of looks quite different than uh, traditional uh, mouthpieces. Um, Basically, the idea is to allow the clarinetist to hold the instrument in a more comfortable manner. Um, You don't change the angle the mouthpiece is in relationship to your embouchure in, in your mouth. That all remains the same as you would play with any other mouthpiece. But the difference is that the angle that the mouthpiece is inserted into the clarinet is tilted forward rather than leaning back. A a traditional mouthpiece is set where the table is is set back between four and a half and about six degrees. A Zinner mouthpiece is at about six degrees. A Van Doren is at about five degrees. And many, most of the really fine vintage mouthpieces of the past were set at about four and a half to four and a quarter degrees. And so I have made a series of mouthpieces where um, the angle is now tilting a little bit more forward uh, uh, from zero degrees, uh, minus two degrees and minus four degrees. So you've got a differential between, uh, say, a Van Doren of between five and nine uh, degree uh, difference. And that's enough to notice, but it's not not enough to throw you off. Um, and so what that ultimately allows you to do is to have your head in a more upright position. So if I'm um, looking, if I'm playing in an orchestra, I'm not looking down at my music anymore. I'm actually looking outward towards the conductor. Conductor's happier. He feels like he's getting eye contact with me. And I have much better uh, vision to my music and uh, peripherally to the conductor as well. I, uh, I don't need to, um, strain on my bifocal lenses anymore. It's all <laughs> focus. Yeah. And to, to add to that, um, you, you can imagine if, if you're, um, 
angle of the instrument is such that the the is is further out like you know a lot of clarinetists play the instrument because of their natural embouchure their bite configuration so that the angle of the instrument is kind of outward um it's not uh horizontal to the ground but it's certainly not vertical either it's probably you know most most people are are um uh, something like a i don't know bringing back the trumpet again but it's it's sort of like a, a trumpet angle down and that puts all the weight of the instrument out on your elbows mm-hmm. and on wrists and so with this angle uh, geometric change it it really holds the instrument's weight on your shoulders a much stronger part uh, of your core part of your body and so uh it allows you to hold the instrument um in a comfortable posture with um uh, without as much strain on your your bones i had uh, tennis elbow uh for a long time a year and a half which uh had uh, this this had I had this mouthpiece going at the time, it would have uh, been much more comfortable. Well, you know, I can even identify with that too because I like to hold my clarinet um, well myself. I guess I have a bad habit of kind of putting my head down a bit, and I found that with using this, I'm able to sit much more comfortably with better posture. And down the line, you do have to be worried about things like tennis elbow or tendonitis and any sort of strain and tension, kind of resolving that. And simply telling a person to lift their head up may not be the solution because depending on their sort of physical nature, they might actually not be able to play as well. Yeah, I think it's dangerous for teachers. I see it oftentimes with with students, they they have TMJ or or jaw problems. And I say, well, uh, how did that develop? And and they said, well, my teacher told me to angle the instrument uh, closer to my body. And and I think that's a, a dangerous thing. I mean, we all have our own unique physiology and uh, jaw structure and we need to respect our natural comfortable sweet spot for playing the clarinet and then from there find the equipment uh, to best suit the individual um, rather than be a cookie cutter I'm a Marcellus student and and Marcellus had a huge overbite I mean it was massive he could keep his mouth essentially closed and and still have a slot open into which he could insert the, the mouthpiece in an almost vertical position the danger is then many Marcellus students uh, told their students to play like Marcellus mm-hmm. and to play with a more vertical posture and you know that that, that can cause um, issues like I mentioned before so I think you know make sure that you find comfort in everything that you do. Well, these health issues are so important. I remember at Clarinet Fest 2007, actually, I saw a presentation for something which to me had been rather poignant, poignant at the time. And that was, I think it's called a palatial air leak. Like you've got air leaking kind of from your nose while you're playing. And looking back, uh, it, this doesn't happen to me anymore, by the way, since I switched to softer reeds and a lighter setup, I don't get the squeaking. I don't get the leaking. Um, and I think it's honestly caused by just way too much pressure in the mouth coming out in places you don't want it. Um, I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Th- that tension has to escape somewhere. And if it doesn't, you know, escape from your sinuses, it can't come out your mouth is too much, you know? Exactly. That, that, that back pressure is just causing your body to leak. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I think that we need to accept the clarinet for what it is. There are yeah. certain truths to the playing experience. And, you know, if we add resistance because we're trying to seek requesting for some kind of a sound that is causing our body harm, we're doing something wrong. And chances are the thing that's wrong is that concept in our head that's guiding us down an unhealthy 
road. And so sometimes the solution isn't necessarily that we have to change, um, uh, you know, how we play, but we need to change what we play. And that is to say, find a lighter reed, find a mouthpiece that allows the air to accept the wind. And then um, additionally, this is the one no one really thinks about. Maybe we ought to change our concepts. Maybe mm. we ought to realize that, hey, the clarinet is a soprano instrument and there are um, high overtones in the mix. And those high overtones are part of what makes the clarinet sound bright and I dare say beautiful. And um, rather than to dampen all of those uh, those upper partials with harder setup, maybe we ought to just embrace the the, uh, the ring that comes from a lighter reed. Well, and we can't escape physics. I mean, for every action, there's an opposite reaction, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> way, way it goes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you also offer a line of barrels, bells, E-flat clarinet extensions as well. And those are all rubber products. Is that the same proprietary rubber? And if not, is there a plan to make those products with that rubber too? It's not my proprietary rod rubber. I have two different materials. One is uh, Bain proprietary rod rubber, um, and the other one is Bain rod rubber two. And basically, uh, the rubber two is uh, the same material that I use in Sono mouthpieces and in all of my accessories, which include um, barrels and bells. And I'm hopeful that down the line, who knows where it goes, but maybe, you know, a, an, an instrument might come down the line. Um, Ooh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but I don't want to, I don't want to promise anything. It's got to be the right instrument. You know, I gotta, it's got to work before it goes to market. It's funny you mentioned that because I was actually going to ask, you know, you've, you've replaced so many parts of the instrument. At what point do you just make an instrument? And uh, is that kind of where you're at? You're, you're considering that? I am. I am. Um, and, you know, as I've been in the um, industry long enough, I've really, um, you know, I mentioned people and how that, that scientist was embracing me. And now I've been in the industry long enough where I can um, get to, I've gotten to know many of the people involved and I have, um, you know, I'm not a clarinet maker. I'm a uh, orchestral clarinetist who also is a mouthpiece maker and barrel and bell maker. But when it comes to an instrument, that's something that I would seek the the counsel of experts uh, who are friends and who have um, uh, concept and ability in instrument making that um, is such that I feel like I can get something that fulfills all of my values. And I've been speaking with um, somebody about that, which is, we'll see, we'll see where it goes, but it's very promising. That's um, very exciting. Yeah. It's not necessarily ever going to be my bread and butter, but it's not going to be, you know, my primary goal. Like I said earlier, I think the mouthpiece is the hub of everything that I do. Um, it informs me as a clarinetist, as well as um, an acoustician and a maker of, of products. Uh, but if I can get a clarinet, on my own design made in an artistic way from materials that are impressive to me, then, um, I'd like to explore that to fully seal the deal. Right. You know, from, from tip to stern, you know, bow to stern, I've got the full product. Um, that's a dream, right. And it's good to have dreams. Well, and you know, given the, uh, the regulations being put on certain types of wood these days and the, the availability concerns of wood, this might be where the clarinet is headed. So you might be on the forefront of something, the future of the clarinet in that sense. 
Yeah. I, you know, wood is the historical uh, material from which clarinets are made. But I have to tell you, I really have been impressed by the acoustics of my rod rubber and my Bain rubber too, as well. I, you know, the, the Bain rubber too is a material that I, that is extruded, but I've really done the, the very best that I could to create the formula that even, and, and the, the cure to include the extrusion process that can as come as close to Bain uh, proprietary rod rubber in its acoustics. So this isn't just regular extruded rubber. This is rubber that's, that is made specifically uh, to uh, and my designs are made sympathetically to create the most epic like playing experience I can make at an affordable price point. And um, I'm not sure that I'll make accessories from Bain rubber to, I'm sorry, from Bain proprietary rod rubber, the expensive stuff, because, you know, who wants to pay $700 for a barrel? I don't know. You know, when you've got like a, what is that, a 39 millimeter bore or something? It's just, it's not as important as the mouthpiece because the mouthpiece, you know, some people say, oh, you know, the material doesn't matter with a mouthpiece. And I totally disagree. Although I will say that the, the design and the facing are more influential on the playing experience than the material. Mm-hmm. But the material does make a difference. I've made mouthpieces with the same exact design from plastics, various plastics and various rubber in, to include, you know, my special stuff. And they all have a different playing experience. You know, rubber in general and plastics too have more stability than wood. Yes. You know, wood is it expands and contracts uh, time and time again. It eventually doesn't come back to its original um, measurements. You know, the bore becomes ovoid and eventually it blows out. And, you know, the great thing about the, the rubber material is you get the, a, a really nice vibrancy um, and stability. And, uh, you know, I can play my barrel 10, 15 years from now. And I, and I know it's going to be essentially the same as it is today. Yeah. Which is an important, important thing, you know, the longevity of it. And especially when you plan to use something for a long duration, such as your, your career. So the the instrument makers, they've got to cure the the wood. They got to let it age. They sometimes, you know, kill and dry it and do all of these things just to try to make sure that it doesn't warp out on them just for that simple reason. And then, you know, they still have problems, you know, like barrels oftentimes, you know, there are these big chunky, uh, fat wood, uh, barrels, uh, because they have to make it with a certain wall thickness to try to mitigate the potential of cracking or mm-hmm. from the tenons um, expanding or contracting in such a way that you can't fit the, the, the parts together very effectively uh, as humidity and, and dryness in the atmosphere change. So, um, you know, the, from a functionality point of view, it's quite, quite apparent to me that you know, synthetic materials to include rubber are superior to wood. The The subjective argument is, but how does it sound? Well, I've been playing in an orchestra, uh, you know, the barrels as well as my mouthpieces now for, you know, the barrels are and the bells are, are, are newer to me. I've been doing them now for a couple of years in orchestra. And um, I think it sounds great. In fact, I think it sounds better than the wood. I'm the maker. They're my babies. Of course, I'm going to think that. Let's yeah. let the marketplace decide. 
No, absolutely. And, uh, you know, one last product we should touch on real quick is yeah. your reeds. And they're, of course, your newest offering. What do you have to say about your new line of reeds? Uh, well, it, first of all, I'm delighted by the response. I'm personally playing them. I played the concert last night on an aria number four. Worked really well on uh, the Brahms Second Symphony. Um, but I've had a great response. Uh, going back to Bill Hudgens, he and I collaborated um, uh, time and, you know, uh, we had a good spirited uh, discussion one time on mouthpieces that led to reeds. And he, here we are a couple of years later with the Aria reed. Um, he's playing them as well. Uh, the idea came to me because when I, you know, mentioned earlier that my mouthpieces kind of take a conversation, a, a relationship with my clients and, and, you know, let the process unfold. But a lot of times I'm involved. We communicate by email. Have you tried a lighter read? Maybe if you scrape it this way, um, you know, and then they, they get back to me with their observations. And certainly at clarinet conferences, when I'm working face to face with, with clients, um, sure enough, they'll put their read on my mouthpiece and I can hear the sound of effort. They're working too hard. Um, they're working too hard on their own setup. They've got, they've built into this weird sense that through resistance comes good depth of sound. And that's not the case with my mouthpieces. So, um, I oftentimes for the last 10 years, I would say, here, try this read. And sure enough, it might be um, like a Van Doren three and a half blue box or even a three strength blue box. Um, uh, it could be a Diodario, uh, one of the, remember those old red box uh, yeah. Rico reads, um, you know, in a lighter strength. And sure enough, they'd play and they're like, oh my gosh, the sound, it's just opened up. It's so much more full. It's darker. It's warmer. It's richer. It's brighter. It's everything. And, um, uh, so my wife and I, uh, three or four years ago, we just started talking, you know, if we could come up with a read that has the word Bane on it rather than Van Doren or Diodario or something else, it would benefit my whole presentation. I mean, you know, I think those other companies um, that I look at, Van Doren and Diodario, they have their own mouthpiece and their own read. And I think that that sort of closes the deal. This is now we're presenting a package. It's not like you have to play on a Bane read to make good results on my Bane mouthpieces, but it somehow makes the whole thing seem like a system. It seems more real. And it's certainly in my case with my products being that they're different, so much different than, than other products on the market. It helps the client get there quicker. Mm -hmm. that by there, I mean, to the good place. And, uh, so we, we decided to commit to uh, designing our own read. And, um, several years later, um, uh, I don't know, it's been maybe eight months now that they've been on the market. Um, they've been a marvelous hit. We've sold, you know, thousands of boxes. It's been crazy. Well, you're right though. Cause when you go to another company's booth, I mean, generally they have the reads to go with the mouthpiece. You select the mouthpiece to match the selection of your, your read and vice versa. And, and you kind of do, you work with it that way. It's uh, it would, it would be, um, you know, what's the best thing to compliment your Van Dorn mouthpiece is probably the Van Dorn read that they have right there. <laughs> yeah. You know? So yeah, yeah. I think you're onto something with that. Well, Brad, I want to thank you so much for coming on the Clarinet podcast today. Before we close, is there anything else you'd like to add? I'd like to say thank you very much, Sean. It has been a pleasure getting to know you at the conferences. I look forward to seeing you at the next one. Hopefully we'll see you at uh, TMEA in February. And um, thank you. 
Well, you know, everyone listening, you can find Brad's mouthpieces at www.clarinetmouthpiece.com. And for the show notes for this episode at clarinet.com, I will provide links to anything that we mentioned throughout our conversation. So thank you so much, Brad, for coming on the show. And I look forward to our next meeting as well. Thanks, Sean. Me too. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Clarinet Podcast. If you find that you're enjoying the show, please consider supporting it. You can do this at www.clarinet.com slash Patreon. Patreon backers get access to all kinds of different bonus content, and at the gold level, which is $10 per month, you get access to extended, ad-free versions of episodes just like this one. Today's conversation with Brad Bain features almost 10 minutes of additional content that you don't want to miss. Be sure to tune in next time for a conversation about the podcast itself. I want to give a bit of a stats update, discuss some of where it's going, and I also want to share, uh, well, I guess I'll share it now, but we're nearing 100,000 downloads of this show, so... I'm going to be announcing an extra special uh, sort of giveaway. And also, if you check out the Facebook group before September 30th and on September 30th, I'm going to be putting out a call to action uh, for listener engagement and involvement with the upcoming episode. That'll come out on Monday, and I look forward to seeing you then. Sanding, shaping, balancing. For centuries, mastering your instrument meant mastering these crafts too. But now, D'Addario is refining craftsmanship for the 21st century by refining their reeds and mouthpieces with the world's most innovative techniques, so you can spend less time sanding, shaping, and balancing, and more time perfecting your own craft. To learn more about the new era of craftsmanship from D'Addario Woodwinds, visit daddario.com woodwinds.